evidence and answers. Is God necessary to know right from wrong? Can we be good without God? Is it possible to have an objective and absolute standard of morality without God? Since the Enlightenment, Western civilization has tried to establish a system to discern right from wrong without God, and the results have been destructive. You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukrin. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Join Pat today as he explains why God is essential to any moral system and the dangerous results that follow when cultures turn away from God's moral law. This entire message, along with other studies from Pat and other top Christian scholars, are available at evidenceandanswers.org. I'm sure you're going to find this show challenging and informative. So let's join Pat now as he presents a message given this past November at the largest gathering of Christian educators in the Philippines. Good morning, and thank you for coming to this wonderful conference, and thank you for inviting me back for a second time to be a part of this wonderful teachers conference and to be in this wonderful country. It's always a pleasure for me to be here and to serve at this wonderful teachers conference. It was over 20 years ago I experienced one of my most shocking and disturbing conversations. I was with a PhD student from the University of Michigan named Tuan and we began talking about ethics. How does one determine right and wrong? And he stated that there are no moral absolutes. Right and wrong are relative and determined by the individual. In other words, whatever one chooses to believe is right is right. Well, I then gave my usual example. I said, if morality is relative, if whatever one believes is true, there is really no right or wrong. All we are left with is opinions, no absolute or objective moral standard of goodness by which we can judge an act as good or evil. Therefore, it is impossible to condemn any act as evil. And at this, he agreed. I then stated, so Hitler truly believed in Aryan superiority and the extermination of the Jews and others he considered to be inferior human beings. Therefore, since he believed it was right, you're saying that he was right? And Tuwin's answer surprised me. He stated, that is correct. If Hitler believed he was right, then he was right, and we're in no position to judge his actions. I then asked, so if Hitler was successful in conquering the world and killing off anyone who opposed his ideology, his ethical system would be right? And the student without blinking said, if Hitler believed he was right, then that is right for him, and it is wrong to judge him otherwise. It may be wrong for you, but if he believed it was right, then he was right. Well, I was completely shocked by what I had heard. I thought this guy was crazy. However, it is sad to say I am no longer shocked when I hear the same response with today's young people. This surprising response I first heard over 20 years ago is now a normal conversation I have regularly with most young people in the West. Morality is not absolute but relative and determined by each individual. Today, moral relativity is one of the most dominant but also one of the most dangerous ideas our society has embraced. History and the Bible teach us that the welfare of a nation is built on the goodness and virtue of its people. 
the Bible teaches us that right and wrong are based on a divine moral law. Nations that abided by this divine moral law were strong and prosperous, while those that did not crumbled from within. Western civilizations, including America, were once built on the moral foundation that good is determined by a divine moral law. As stated in our Declaration of Independence, our founding fathers wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You see, the Founding Fathers were appealing to a Creator, creation, and God-given moral absolutes. As a result, these nations, such as the United States, prospered and were blessed. However, since the Enlightenment of the 1700s and the introduction of philosophies like the Darwinian evolutionary theory, Western civilization has turned away from belief in God. Many reason that if God is not necessary to explain the origins of life, He is not needed for an ethical system. Today, many of the Western nations are in a battle for their very survival as a generation steeped in moral relativism struggles to define right from wrong. Now, at the heart of the debate is worldviews, the Christian worldview and the naturalist or atheist worldview. Since the Enlightenment, intellectuals have tried to define right and wrong apart from God. But can we be good without God? Is it possible to have an absolute and objective basis for morality apart from God? Can we define an objective standard of good without God? Men have tried to define right and wrong apart from God, and we have discovered the definitions to be inadequate. Here are a few ways right and wrong are determined without God. The first is right and wrong are determined by the ones in power. This is called the might makes right system. Without God, determining right from wrong becomes a might makes right kind of ethical system. Now, this system can be a reasonably just system if the one in power is good, wise, loving, sacrificial, and just. However, the basic flaw is, how do we define good? How do we measure whether the leader is good and just and fair? You see, there is an objective standard by which we hold even rulers accountable to. And where does that standard which is higher than even any king or ruler, come from, by which we appeal to. You see, an example of this in recent days, the people of Egypt are protesting the policy of their new president, Mohamed Morsi, who sought to rewrite Egypt's constitution and rule with absolute power and uh, remove any accountability structure. Now, even though he is in power, there is a standard of justice by which the Egyptian people are holding him accountable too. Well, where does that standard, which is higher than even any king or ruler, come from? A second flaw is assuming that power equates to goodness. History is filled with examples of men who have been in positions of power and abuse it 
for their own gain. Men such as Nero, Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, and Saddam Hussein were responsible for the death of millions of their own people. And in this country, former presidents have been indicted for robbing the people of millions of dollars. History provides ample examples that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, a second method for determining right and wrong is called utilitarianism. This system states right and wrong are determined by whatever is the greatest good for the greatest number in the long run. Right and wrong, then, is determined by the long-term results they produce. Now, this system has some good points. It looks to determine the best results not for the one in power, but for the majority. However, this system possesses some basic flaws. First, how do we know what are good results? What do we mean by good? We still have not determined what is good. One cannot define good without an objective standard. Second, how do we know the long-term results? What works now may not be good in the long run. We cannot know the future. Third, the greatest good for the greatest number implies denying minorities their right. Now take for example the nation of China. To control their growing population, China has instituted their one-child policy. Now, at a Christian leaders gathering, I asked the Christian leaders there in that country, do they agree with the one-child policy? And to that question, every hand went up in agreement. And I asked why, to which they replied to control our population. Now, it appears this policy is working and the population is being controlled, but what are the long-term effects? Now, if you could have only one child, what would you prefer, a boy or a girl? Well, most would say a boy to carry on the family name. Well, then what are we teaching our children? We are, in essence, saying boys are more valuable than girls. Second, if most families choose a boy, when these boys grow up, let me ask you a question. Who are they going to marry? You know, in order to find wives, they will need to go to another country. So what may appear to be good results in the short term may have devastating effects in the long term. Well, a third method is majority rules. What is right is determined by the majority. This is how democracies work. Now, this method provides several benefits, but a democracy works well only if the majority are good and virtuous. When the majority are good, a democracy can be quite successful. However, we still have not answered the question, how do we define good? Second, there are examples where the majority have been wrong. For example, in the United States, the majority voted to legalize abortion. Since Roe v. Wade in 1973, the United States has murdered over 50 million infants. You see, the majority can be wrong. 
And also, history has shown that reformation of a culture begins with a minority. We know that the slave trade was ended by the leadership of William Wilberforce and a small group of courageous people who spoke out against the enslavement of Africans and the practice of slavery in Europe and the United States. Well, a fourth method is culture determines right and wrong. Right and wrong are determined by the group or culture that one belongs to. Now, a basic flaw here is that cultures can embrace wrong values. What about cultures that teach polygamy? You know, there's a fundamentalist Mormon group there in West Texas where the man is being indicted for having married girls as young as 10 and 11 years old. Well, what about cultures that teach the inferiority of women? For example, there are parts of the world under Islamic rule that have oppressive teachings and practices towards women. For example, the Quran teaches in chapter 4, men are the maintainers of women because Allah has made some of them to excel others and because they spend out of their property. The good women are therefore obedient, guarding the unseen as Allah has guarded. And as to those on whose part you fear desertion, admonish them and leave them alone in the sleeping places and beat them. Then if they obey you, do not seek a way against them. Surely Allah is high, Allah is great. That is why in several of these countries, the physical abuse of women by men, their husbands or their brothers or their fathers is allowed. The Hadith, which records the sayings of Muhammad, the second most important book in Islam, states, The Prophet said, Isn't the witness of a woman equal to half that of a man? The woman said, Yes. And he said, This is because of the deficiency of a woman's mind. And so therefore, in Islamic countries where there is Sharia law, indeed the woman does not have equal rights to that of a man, as taught in the Quran, as practiced by Muhammad and in the Hadith. Well, should we simply agree that since this is part of the culture, we should accept it as right? Or should we stand against it and fight for the equality of women? Third, if each culture is right, how do we determine right when cultures come into conflict? Now, most of these systems, although they have some benefits, have some serious shortcomings. Without God or an objective universal moral standard, we eventually end up with a system of moral relativism. Moral relativism teaches, I am the measure. What is right is determined by each individual. And what is right for me may be wrong for another, but no one has the right to judge another person's actions as right or wrong. Now this represents the worst of all systems. What is right for one individual may be cruel to another. If this were in place, society would be rendered inoperable. If everyone did as they pleased, there would be chaos. And we see this in the book of Judges. The final chapters ends 
with the disturbing story of a Levite priest and his concubine. Now at this time, the nation of Israel had degraded in sin and lawlessness filled the land. And here the Levite priest is traveling through the country with his concubine. Now, what is a Levite priest? Someone who is supposed to be serving in the very temple of Jerusalem, in the holiest place in all the land of Israel, doing, running around with a concubine. And as he's traveling through the country, he spent the night with his concubine in the city of Gibeah. And in the night, the men of the city sought to molest this Levite priest. Well, not wanting to be raped, this courageous man, haha, throws his concubine to the mob and they rape her all night long. Now, the next day, he finds her barely alive lying on the steps of the house and the priest chops her up into 12 pieces and sends it to all the tribes of Israel calling them to war and a civil war breaks out nearly wiping out the tribe of Benjamin and the book of Judges ends in chapter 1 on a very disturbing note it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes Here's just an example of the destructive conclusion of moral relativity. Now, these systems, except for the last one, have some benefits, but they still fail to provide a basis for morality. They still do not define good and evil. We still need an absolute objective and universal moral system. These systems are inadequate to provide a basis for morality and fail to answer key questions needed. First, why are human beings of value and why is their survival the greatest good? You see, if God does not exist, we are simply accidents in the universe. And if we are merely accidents, what makes our standard and our survival the greatest good? For ultimately the universe will die and in the end, mankind faces annihilation. And what was the ultimate purpose for our existence? It is ultimately meaningless. In a radio debate I had with an atheist, he stated, I made the case that without God, our existence is ultimately meaningless, for the universe will end, and one day, mankind shall be annihilated and extinct and in the end it all ends in annihilation and the only hope that we have to look forward to is our extinction and annihilation and so what difference did it ever make that we were ever here and I said ultimately our lives are insignificant and meaningless and this atheist responded and said well that's just your opinion and I replied, no, I'm simply repeating what you atheists have been stating for decades. And he said, well, give me an example. And I said, well, Bertrand Russell. He states, man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his love and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. You see, we're simply an accident here. He goes on to state that no fire... No heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. 
that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Why is man's survival the greatest good if there is no ultimate purpose for his existence? All the achievements of the scientists to improve the quality of life upon the earth ends in annihilation with the end of the universe and the end of mankind. All that the politician fights for, for justice and the freedom of all people, ends in extinction with the annihilation and the end of our universe and mankind. All that we strive for, that we achieve, that we love, that we invest our lives into, all end in annihilation. If our ultimate end is extinction, why is our survival then the greatest good? Especially if there is no ultimate purpose for our existence and it all ends in extinction. Second, if our existence is ultimately meaningless, then ethics without God is ultimately meaningless. Because it doesn't matter how one lives, whether like Mother Teresa or Adolf Hitler, we all come to the same end. Now, I'm not saying that those who do not believe in God cannot live moral lives. I have many atheist friends who live, quote, moral lives. But what I'm saying is there is no basis for morality or living moral lives. Atheists such as Bertrand Russell, David Hume, and Nietzsche admitted without God life is meaningless and morality is ultimately meaningless. Dr. William Provine, biology professor at Cornell University, states these haunting words that if atheism is true, it ultimately means, quote, no life after death, no absolute foundation for right and wrong, no ultimate meaning for life, no free will. Now Solomon, centuries ago, in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, stated the same thing. After turning away from God and indulging in all the pleasures of life, he ended up concluding in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. Solomon, after turning away from God, realized morality is meaningless. There is no God, no life after death, and no purpose for our existence. Our lives are ultimately meaningless in how we live, whether moral or, quote, immoral, is ultimately meaningless because we all, man and beast, come to the same end. Third, if God does not exist, it is not possible to define objective good and evil. If something is objectively evil, there is an absolute standard of good by which we are measuring it by. Well, where does that standard of good come from? And what is that standard? 
We all appeal to a universal moral law when we call something evil. I hope you were challenged and inspired by Pat's message. If you missed any part of this study, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to the entire message and enjoy other great resources right there on the site. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. I hope you'll be with us next week as Pat presents part two of this message, Can We Be Good Without God? Join us each week right here for more Evidence and Answers. Oh,